The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Genesis, chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself down to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have already come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of flour knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. The second reading is from Genesis chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter of me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Uh, My name is Justin. I'm the pastor here at Sacred City Church. Uh, I do want to welcome you uh, to our gathering. Um, It's been an interesting week week for me. It's been busy. A lot of early mornings, a lot of late nights. Um, I feel a little weird this morning, so uh, buckle up. I'm going to pray and we're going to get started. Father, I thank you for gathering us. I thank you for bringing us together from all across these four cities and and probably more. I thank you for bringing us under the reading of your word, bringing us under the authority of your word, bringing us under the power of your word. And I ask that you would communicate through me today, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. I pray that um, you would be with us, that your presence would be near, that you would cut us to the heart and yet heal us uh, with the balm of the gospel. I ask you to do all these things in your name. For your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I got some kind of wicked buzz back here. <clears throat> All right. So, 
as a pastor, part of my job, it's kind of twofold. Sometimes I give you what you want. <laughs> and sometimes I give you what you don't want. All right. Um, and I'm going to start off with talking about that a little bit. There's this way of being human that kind of makes us into, it's called consumerism. Most of us know all about it. Um, we're marketed things. We want things that basically marketers and, and corporate America and, and small businesses, and they, they feed off this need that we have, this desire that we have inside of us to own things, to want things, this desire to want. They feed off of that. They market products to us and we go spend our hard-earned money to buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like, right? Typically, that's kind of how, how we do Now, listen, a lot of the churches... A lot of churches jump in on that and they say, hey, 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 consumerism is just the culture that we live in. It's just the stream that we're a part of. Uh, don't fight it. Just use it. So those people will take ideas from marketing and they'll take ideas from corporate America and they'll bring them into the church and, and they'll have huge banners outside that say it's family Sunday or it's, it's you know, if you have two kids and a dog Sunday and, and it's, you know, then we just market, 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 market. Oh, it's, you know, it's Christmas time. So let's market. We're going to have the best Christmas play ever. And you're, you're like, I think I know how this play is going to end, right? Our Easter play is better than the church down the streets. Easter play. I'm pretty sure it's going to end with a guy on a cross. Okay. I'm pretty sure we've, you've got that, but we market. So, so churches tend to market against one another and, and try to tap into this, this consumeristic nature that we have as human beings. Now, we're not, we don't, we're, we're trying to fight against that at Sacred City. We try to go against that. That's why we do liturgy. That's why, there's just a lot of reasons we do. That's why we do missional communities. Um, very few people just naturally say, you know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for a group of people that I can do life with, that I can be, you know, they can know all my junk and know all my sin and we can eat together. Very few of us really want that. We just naturally gravitate towards that. But that, listen, that is how you were made. When God made you a Mago Dei, when God made you in the image of God, he is a community himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, coexist in the Trinity. He's a community himself. And when he built you, he built you for community. Now listen, for those of you who are on Facebook or Twitter or you think that I'm talking about that. No, 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 I'm not talking about online. God did not build you for online community. God built you for real community. With real flesh and blood, jacked up people like you. He built you for that. And I believe... We could just go back to the garden to learn a lot of this stuff. I believe that the reason we're so attracted to online community, the reason we're so attracted to Facebook and Twitter is because it communicates something that's not real to us. What does it communicate to us? See, only God is omnipresent. But you, but we think we get on Facebook and now we're omnipresent. We can be everywhere all at the same time. No, you can't. You are here in this room. And when you are on Facebook in some weird way, if you're in this room and you're on Facebook in some weird way, you're not here. And where are you then? Where are you? And I believe our culture is communicating something to our soul deeper than we realize, and it's messing us up. I have met just this week with 
all three or four different, I mean, heavy, hard, hardcore meetings this week of people with no emotion. People with no feelings. People who have been tricked by our culture into shutting off their heart and shutting off their emotions and becoming some, I don't even know how to describe it, robot, workaholic, um, suck it up and be a man. Uh, I don't even know what that, I don't even know. Something subhuman is all I can say. And my job as a pastor is to call out the image of God and people and say, we're not consumers. That's not who we are. We weren't built to consume things. We were built to produce and to live in community and on mission and in relationship with God and each other. We're built to, to live in community with each other. We're built to be human. We're built to have emotions that respond to each other. Anger, passion, love, joy. We're meant to grieve. We're meant to be hurt. We're meant to laugh. But our culture has kind of wooed us and tricked us into believing, no, 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 you only have value if you're beautiful. We don't really care about your hurts and pains. Just give me a really good profile pic. Right? Maybe it's your, your, your grade point average. That's what matters. Maybe it's your success. Maybe it's... Uh, on and on and on you go. But our culture has convinced us the one thing that doesn't matter is real life relationships. It's the one thing that doesn't matter. That's what our culture has convinced us of. And you know how, how we prove them right? We sit at home. We watch TV. We feel like we've connected with someone when we post on their wall. I've got like six likes. Right, like no, and, and I'm and I'm not just, you know, want to rail against that today. This isn't even my notes, but I think it's pointing to something deeper. I think it's pointing to we don't know how to be human beings anymore. And our culture doesn't care. As long as you're putting the money in the slot machine, it doesn't matter. As long as you're paying Abercrombie and you're paying whoever needs to be paid at the moment, as long as you're paying, they're going to keep you in this cycle. Consume, 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 consume. And we go home and we wonder why we're not fulfilled. And we wonder why we're not happy. And Jesus Christ comes into a world like that and he puts on flesh and he's normal. And he doesn't define himself by what he consumes. He defines himself by his relationship with the Father and his relationship with other people. That's, what's, that's what matters. And, I, and as I was reading this week, I read an old interview with C.S. Lewis. He's one of my favorite dead dudes. You guys probably know, I quote him all the time. And this is what he said. He said this, my happiest hours are spent... Now listen, C.S. Lewis, he wrote Narnia. He wrote some phenomenal works you know, philosopher, what's his favorite thing to do? My happiest hours are spent sitting up to the small hours in someone's college room talking nonsense, poetry, theology, metaphysics over beer, tea, and pipes. There's no sound I like better than adult male laughter. There's no sound I like better than adult male laughter. 
I think Lewis is trying to get to the core of what it means to be human. Evolutionary biologists, they love to tell us that laughter serves no purpose. The only purpose of laughter is to, to silence the fight or flight mechanism that we have to kind of develop community with people. But all of a sudden, evolution decided, well, let's not kill each other. Now let's just be chill and laugh. It's pretty sad, actually. But laughter, I think, is something special. Laughter is something unique to human beings. Laughter is something that unites us as human beings. It's something that can unite us as friends by removing the stuffiness and the formality out of our relationships. It's kind of like leveling the playing field. G.K. Chesterton said, laughing unfreezes pride and it unwinds secrecy. It makes men and women forget themselves in the presence of something greater than themselves. Arrogant people don't laugh too often. Might make them look bad. People who take themselves too seriously have a hard time laughing. But today's narrative from Genesis 18 and 21 will show us and remind us that actually, here's something that's kind of crazy. There are at least two different types of laughter. And I think our culture is really good at this one type of laughter. There's a laughter of scorn, a laughter of disbelief, a laughter of mockery. I think our culture is good at this. We're good at making fun. We're good at disdain. We're getting, we're good at like pushing off and kind of, and kind of like dismissing people. We're good at that kind of laughter. But I think our culture is missing the laughter of joy. In the Bible, I kind of feel like this sermon's a little undercooked, but we'll see what the spirit does. The Bible actually has a lot to say about laughter. It's too too bad many of God's people seem to get their laughing card removed with church membership. That's just wrong. As gospel people, we have a lot of reasons to laugh. Martin Luther is famous for saying, you have as much laughter as you have faith. You have as as much laughter as you have faith. There's something the gospel should, should bring us to be laughing people. Indeed, the psalmists tell us that even God himself laughs. And in the book of Job, when all hell is breaking loose in Job's life, one of his comforters tell him, God himself, Job, God himself will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. I pray that the gospel would so change our hearts that these numb hearts that we have, these numbed emotions, these deadened senses of humanity, that God would breathe his laughter into us, that we could respond in joy again, that we could feel again like Aslan in the book of Narnia when he's singing over creation and he's restoring all things that were broken to the way they once were, that God would sing over his creation today once more, sing into our hearts, and he would erupt this laughter of joy. He would give us this joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's what you were made for. Sin has marred it. You've bought into, you've bought into what sin offers you. Some of you could flip through a magazine and go, that's who I want to be. Airbrushed. one-dimensional. But 
you see that as human. You see that as successful. You see that as something to strive for. And the Father in God says, no. That's not humanity. Humanity is messy. Humanity is ugly at times. Right? We all want the bride when she walks down the aisle, right? We're, oh, oh, oh. But she gets up the next morning. Right? She rolls over, baby. Oh, oh. Right? Her hair's this, makeup's gone. <laughs> That's a good picture of marriage right there. And he says, what did I do? <clears throat> I think our laughter, I think our laughter can tell us a lot about who we are as people. And it can also be a sign. Listen, our laughter can be a sign that we're a Christian. Not just that we laugh, but what makes us laugh? What do we laugh at? Last week we saw in our text that Abram was laughing at God's promise that Sarah would give birth to a baby in her old age. And that laughter was not a sign of joy, but that laughter was a sign of unbelief. Abram's laughter showed that he still just couldn't believe God's promises. Listen, I think some of us, we get so used to this. Preacher talks about a new life. Ha! Tried it. Preacher talks about a new marriage. Ha! Tried it. Preacher talks about deep community and life on life and real relationships. Ha! Tried it. Preacher talks about freedom. Ha! Tried it. Not for me, maybe for somebody else. I'm too deep into my sin. I've got too many pains. I've got too many hurts. But he don't know my wife. So we laugh in disbelief at God. This is not a laughter of joy. This is not a laughter of grace. This is not a laughter of hope. Instead, it's a la laughter of hopelessness. Sad. It's just too hard to believe. But God, in the display of grace and irony, God disregards Abram's laughter. And in, in a sense, in himself, he gets the last laugh. Oh, you're going to laugh? Your boy's name going to be, he laughs. Name him Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. So God disregards it, doesn't look at Abram and go, after all I've done for you, laughing, that's, a, that's how you're going to respond to me? God kind of, instead of reacting towards it, he just kind of throws a joke at him. Oh, <laughs> you laugh. Really? Your son, he laughs too. And this is where we pick up today's narrative. It's not too much long. It's not too much. It hasn't been too much time here. It's, it's not very long after that scene that we just talked about last week where Abram laughed at God, but God still ended up responding in faith or, but he still, Abram still responded in faith by circumcising all the men of his household, right? Now we're at Genesis chapter 18, verse one. And I want you to follow along with me today. Um, and if you, if you, you can download, we got a um, Sacred City app that you can download in any app store. Uh, get it on your tablet or your phone. We also have Bibles in the back. We also have version that you can check it out. We're at 18 verse 1. When you're there, say there. Okay. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now, let me give you some backstory here. 
All right? I read some books this week, and uh, I'm gonna guess, I got some big words to give you to impress you. And that's what you pay me for, right? So here we go. Abraham was a Bedouin. Mm-hmm. That's basically a nomadic desert dweller who just kind of stays on the move a lot. They don't dwell in cities. The mobile home life is the life for them, right? They take their tents. They move on. They're constantly on the move. He's a Bedouin. And since they live in the uh, hot desert, they're on the move a lot. They were smart, and they kind of adjusted their schedules around the hottest part of the day. During the hottest part of the day, they would rest. So that is what we find Abram doing right here. He's having his afternoon siesta. Praise God for naps. All right? That's what Abram is doing. It's the hottest part of the day. So he's sitting at the front of his tent. He's got the shade over top of him. And he's just relaxing and he's resting in the hottest moment of the day. Now let's look and see what happens. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. All right? As Abram is sitting there in the shade of his tent, three dudes walk up. Now, in a Bedouin society, hospitality was one of the chief virtues. I believe that hospitality is still one of the chief virtues as a Christian. Jesus says that when you welcome strangers, when you feed them, when you even give them a cup of water, you are in effect doing it to him. And Hebrews goes on to tell us that some of us, this is this will trip your trigger here, some of us, by welcoming in the outsider and being hospitable to the outsider, have even unaware to them entertained angels. And that's exactly what's going on here. Abram, the outsider, the moon worshiper, the man who deserves death and judgment for his sins, but instead received grace, this man who God has welcomed, the outsider that God has brought in, now responds with gospel hospitality and welcomes these three men. Now I'm just going to tell you, give you a little heads up. Most commentators, um, Think They don't think that Abram realizes that these men are angels until verses 9 and 10. He's just responding and treating others how God has treated him in the gospel. So most commentators don't think that Abram's sitting there looking and go, three angels. Snap to it, guys. Let's get to work here. He just looks out. He sees three men walk up and the natural response of his heart, of a sinner's heart who'd been welcomed by the gospel, who had God on mission to him, a natural response of that sinner is to welcome outsiders. So that's what Abram does. This is what we see him say. I mean, look, actually, I'm not going to, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to tell it. You see five different times. Okay. Abram snaps to it. He runs. He prepares it quickly. He tells his wife, quick, 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 get some more food. He does things really quickly. He's on the move. This is important to him. We see him say to these men, hold on, hold on. Please stay with me. Please stay with me. He says, let me go get some water and a morsel. I love this. A morsel of bread. But in actuality, he prepares a bountiful and generous feast. He's not like our culture that promises the moon, right? And gives you a happy meal. He says, let me get some water and a morsel of bread. He under promises and over delivers, unlike our culture who constantly over promise and under deliver. And he does it quickly. Now listen, if you know, again, this society, 
patriarchal society, listen, listen here's, here's the thing you need to know. Patriarchs don't run. They don't run. I mean, seriously, they wore dresses, you know? You step on your dress at full speed and things go badly. It was a sign. I mean, they just, they were respectful. They didn't run. And Abraham is on the hop here. He gets up. He's going to work. It's the heat of the day. So here we have Abram ignoring some of his sensibilities. See, he's not too worried about appearances. He's on a mission to bless his guests. So Abram enlists some help, and then he gets the feast prepared. And then as a sign of respect, it says he stands and lets them sit and eat. This is, again, all a result of his Bedouin hospitality. It's, it's cultural stuff. He prepares the food. He welcomes the outsider. He blesses them with more than they can handle. And he stands while they sit. It's a sign of respect. And then the, this is what the visitors, the visitors say. And this, gives us, this is a key to understanding this text in verse 9. It says this, They, they said to him, Where's Sarah, your wife? Okay, now listen, this is key. God has already showed up to Abram several times. God has never showed up to Sarah. God has told Abram, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Yeah, you're old, but I'm going to do something. He's never showed up to Sarah. And now we have these three angels saying, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, we learn two things from this verse. Number one, the angels were here for Sarah's benefit and not Abram's. Abraham's. They wanted her attention. So this is what's going on in the story. He's sitting at the, the front of the tent. She's right inside the tent. Right? We're not talking about soundproof walls here. Right? Where's Sarah? She's in the tent. She's like, hmm. Right? They're, they're drawing in her attention. They, this is for her. This is a sign of respect. Guests come and she's in the tent. In that culture. But she's, her ears perk up. So number one, they wanted her attention. This was for Sarah's ears and not necessarily Abraham's. And then number two, what do they call her? Sarah. Now, they knew Sarah's new name. They knew her new identity that God had just given her in the last chapter. This was probably the trigger where Abraham recognized, oh, this isn't just three dudes. And what it is in actuality is two angels and Jesus. We see that in verse 10, where now the Moses, the narrator, says, the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord, that's Yahweh, that's Jesus. Jesus, so one of these dudes is Jesus. He says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Verse 11. Now Abram, I love this. Now Abram and Sarah were old and advanced in years. Now, just in case we haven't picked this up from the last 20 times, the narrator has told us that she's barren and old. He gives it to us one more time. For all of us with a public school education, Moses is laying on an extra thick for us right here, right? She cannot have children. It's like the 20th time they've told us this. All right, it says this, the way of women 
has passed her. She's post-menopausal. There was no human way that Abraham and Sarah could have children together. With man, it was impossible. I think after this many chapters, we should get that. And how, this is the key here, and how does Sarah respond? Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? How does Sarah laugh? How does Sarah respond? She laughs. Now, this is not a hopeful and joyful expression of laughter. This is a hopeless and cynic. It's a cynical laughter. It's a dismissive laughter. It's a... Right? It's a laughter of disbelief. How many of our hearts respond to the promises of God? Newness? Emotions? Depth? Change? (laughs) Right. Man, I think this narrative gets to the heart of where we are as a culture. I heard someone say one time that our culture can get us to accept anything they can get us to laugh at. She's laughing in disbelief. And this is what she says. Um, I'm worn out. Abe is old. And then look at this next comment. And I think it's really important. She says to Jesus, shall I have pleasure? Look at this. Look at this. This is key. Shall I indeed? Oh, no, no. Oops. Is it, where, where are we at here? Verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So many commentators and people, when they read this, they think that she's talking about having a child. Shall I have pleasure? Now listen, only a man would think she's talking about having a child. Shall I have pleasure? Having a baby, men, if you don't know, is not a pleasurable experience. She's not talking about, oh, shall I have a pleasurable childbirth? That's not what she's talking about. This word in the Hebrew and other places gets translated as lust. The word pleasure is in reference to sexual pleasure. What Sarah is saying is this. I'm old. My lady parts are worn out. Abe's old too. Do you seriously think we're going to have sex? Listen, this cooked my noodle this week. I'm sitting back thinking, oh my goodness, I seriously think that I thought, I just, I thought God like just gave her a baby. And I was like, well, but then it wouldn't be Abraham's baby. It'd be God's baby. And he kind of does it with Mary later. So, I, oh, Abe's a hundred. She's 90. 
<laughs> there it is. Now listen. Amen. Now, and the women are like, I want you to hear this. God shows up. What she's always wanted. She's wanted a baby. Listen to me here. She's wanted a child. God's promised it. What she's always wanted. Jesus shows up himself and says, by this time next year, she's going to have a baby. You and her. You're going to hook up. She's in the tent. She goes, I'm going to have sex with him. Now listen, this makes sense if you think about it in more ways than one. Abraham and Sarah have been alienated from each other. Their marriage has been rocky at best. Abraham has already sold her out once and then married the pretty young Hagar. Right? Abraham's relationship with Hagar and the son she bore, Ishmael, has further shamed Sarah and brought all kinds of pain into her relationship. We need to wake up and see what this this passage is telling us. Sarah is very clear. She's telling us here, they're not having sex. Their relationship was broken. Their bodies were wearing out and obviously Sarah's faith was gone. Up until this point, God has not showed up to Sarah and obviously Abram, listen, you can see this here. Abraham didn't do his job. Abraham couldn't convince her that she was chosen by God to produce the child whose descendant would bring redemption to the world. Abraham couldn't convince her of it. Sarah, he's talking about you. And she's like, uh-uh. Abraham's faith was his. But at this point, it was his alone. Sarah was not a believer. And I think then Abraham... Abraham Men, we never get off the hook. God then, Jesus then calls out Abraham here for his lack of spiritual leadership with Sarah. He's like, why'd she laugh, Abraham? Why'd she laugh? Abraham's finally, he's probably like, that's what I've been trying to tell you, man. She's difficult. (laughs) And then Jesus says this. Oh, Look, look what he says here. Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now stop. I love the ESV. I think it's the best Bible out there. Word for word translation for today's best scholars. But if you see, there's a little number by the word hard. And most commentators, <laughs> type A people, INTJs that have ex- succeeded at school, they're good with stuff, but they don't want to put the real word here because it's kind of an emotional word. It's, it's, this is the real word. Is anything too wonderful for God? Wonder? Wonder? Let's put hard. Difficult. He can do anything. It's kind of the point, right? I think it misses the point. So you can probably see that asterisk, and then if you go down, it shows you right there that it says wonderful. And that's important because, listen, listen, here's the difference. Here's the difference. Power, might, is anything too hard? That kind of, that might inspire some awe. That might inspire some, wow, 
That dude's powerful. But wonder. Wonder is something that inspires delight. Wonder is something that inspires pleasure or admiration. And Moses, Moses here, in a brilliant way, the narrator is showing us what's wrong with Sarah. She has lost her wonder. Her laughter was a bitter laughter, a hopeless laughter, a cynical laughter. She had lost her wonder. Now, I think many of us are in a similar place as Sarah in a lot of ways. It seems to us that wonder leaks. One of my favorite shows growing up was called The Wonder Years. And that title points to something. Wonder Years. There's an expiration date on wonder. Eventually, you're going to find out that life sucks and just be cynical and accept it. We have a wonder leak. As we get older, we lose our wonder. Little kids delight in the falling snow and springtime rains. And the adults are in the house thinking about how it affects us shoveling and mowing our grass. Raining again. Right? You ever watch a kid blow bubbles? You just you, you think he invented, you know, a jet plane or something. Every time I blow on it. Yeah, every time you blow on it. Children are born with this sense of wonder. Everything is just amazing to them. Everything is just, oh. And then as we get older, you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Oh, God. See it for the next time. You're like, I got to Instagram this. Okay, good. Let's go. Back on the road. As we get older, our sense of wonder leaks. It becomes harder to laugh. It becomes harder to relate. It becomes harder to enjoy. It becomes harder to be happy. We kind of lose hope as we lose our joyful laughter. Now, this isn't always the case, but retirement communities aren't really known for their roars of laughter and their jovial residents. All right? We know a few, we know a few who, who buck that a little bit around here. But they're not known for that. Right? They're known for cynics. Right? They, they didn't make a movie called Jovial, Jovial Old Men. It's called Grumpier Old Men. Right? Why? Because life has a way of beating us down, of sucking the wonder out of us. But G.K. Chesterton has also written that we live in a wonder-killing world. Not only does life kind of beat it out of us, life kind of drain it out of us, and we have this wonder leak with age, but we also live in a wonder-killing world. If you've been to college and have taken any evolutionary biology class in the last 20 years, they will tell you, that laughter and joy, love and beauty are just chemical reactions that take place in the brain. And that if they knew how, they could shock your brain with a certain electric charge and completely change who and what you love. 
They could change what you deem beautiful by an electric charge they send to your brain. Do you hear that? No wonder we're a cynical people. The evolutionary sciences that are kind of pushing us along. Do you hear what they tell us? Love, beauty, joy, laughter are just chemical reactions. It's no wonder we lose our sense of wonder. But Chesterton, he goes on to say that art, art has a way of recapturing our sense of wonder. Music, art, stories, narrative, they have a way of reversing the wonder leak in the human soul. And that's exactly what this true story, this true narrative is meant to do in our hearts. Sarah, see, she's lost her wonder. She's cynical. She's dismissive. But God is going to give it back to her by grace. But in order order for Sarah to know it's all grace... The God who sees has to pin her down. So God doesn't just, like Abram, when Abram laughed, God's just like, whatever, I'll give you a boy. He laughs, right? He doesn't really address it. With Sarah, he pins her down. Why'd you laugh? I didn't laugh. No, you did. It's so odd that that's in scripture. Why'd you laugh? I didn't laugh. No, you did. On to the next one. He's wanting to make a point. Oh, I saw you laugh. It wasn't a hopeful, joyful, faith-filled laugh. It was a cynical laugh. I saw it. And what he's, what he's saying, he's putting an exclamation point on it. It's like one of those points in a movie that if you've seen the movie more than once and you're like, you're with a person who's no one seen it once, you're like, you're going to want to remember that right there. That, that point, it's going to make sense at the end. Remember that. That's what he's saying right here. I didn't laugh. You did. And this will make sense later. Your laughter, dismissive, hopeless, cynical laughter. Somebody else is going to get the last laugh later. And this will make sense in your story later. There's nowhere to run for Sarah. God says, your wonder is gone. I see that, but I'm here to give it back. And this is the prescription. Sarah? Go have sex with your husband. Now, ladies, if you want an application to bring home to your husband, there it was, right there. That was the application point. Listen, God didn't just want to give her a baby. God didn't just want to, I mean, we're talking a child that through redemption, the birth of Jesus Christ is going to come through this family line. Why didn't God just go, poof, baby? God wanted to restore their relationship. He wanted to change their hearts. He wanted to renew the image of God in them. He wanted to give them wonder. He wanted to soften them and give them emotions and connect them again. I hope you see that. God wants their hearts to be connected and their bodies to be connected in sex. He wants to reconcile them. 
Abraham and Sarah need to reconcile. They need to trust God and they need to have gospel-centered sex. Now listen, why doesn't God just give it to them? God needs to change us. Listen, do you hear this? Jesus was resurrected with scars on his hands to tell us our bodies matter. Our pain and our hurt and our scars and our struggles in this life matter. Eternally, they matter. Our everyday lives matter for God. God wants to create into us a gospel people, a people who know how to be human again in a culture that's driven by consumerism and that's driven by shut up and produce. He wants us to be human beings that put relationships above all other things. But in order for us to do that, he has to restore us. He has to fix us. He has to heal our hearts. He has to untwist what's been twisted in our hearts. Listen, in the garden, we were twisted towards things. I w- Adam and Eve would rather have that fruit. They would rather have autonomy. They would rather be self-sufficient than rely and lean on God. God has to untwist that in us. That's what it means to be human. We get untwisted and live in the image of God now. And God has just been pressing this on me. You are not omnipresent. Stop acting like it. Only God is. You are not omniscient. You're not all-knowing. Only God is. You can read every book in the library. You're still lacking. There will always be more books to read. You will never know enough. You will never be a perfect missional community leader. You will never be a perfect father or mother. You will never be a perfect husband. You will never know everything you need to know. You're not God. You're not omnipotent. You don't have all power. You can't change the heart of your spouse. You can't change the heart of your child. You can't change your own heart. God is omnipotent. We need to to know who he is and who we're not. We're weak. We're broken. We're not omnipresent. He puts us in a place. Why do you love Twitter? Because you, you think that Kim Kardashian is your friend. Maybe, oh my, I've seen so many people freak out over, they retweeted me. They, she tweeted at me. She responded. You live in Davenport, Iowa. She knows Iowa because she flew over at one time and looked down at, you know, farm fields with a bunch of squares on it. they grown corn down there. You're in Iowa. This, 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 is, this is doing something to my soul. God puts us in a people, in a place, in a time. And you can embrace that and you can be human there. Or you can live like you live somewhere else. Your real life's on the internet. That worked well for Monte Teo, didn't it?
Listen, God needs to change us before he blesses us. You've went to churches, you've turned on the Christian television, and, he, and they say, God wants to bless you, God wants to bless you, he's going to give you money, he's going to give you success, he's going to give you this, he's going to give you that. Baloney. He wants to change you. He wants to change your heart so that then if any of those things do come, you actually know what to do with it, how to serve him and give him glory, and honor him in all things. God is not just giving a baby to Abram and Sarah. He's saying, I have to heal your hearts first. Your cold, dead, broken hearts have to be remade. You need to go and be connected once again. You have to have this marriage restored before I can bless you. You got to change. Their hearts had to learn to love and laugh again. And they needed, to recon, rec, they needed to reconcile and rekindle their sex life in their 90s. Now listen, we're going to jump ahead here to Genesis 21. This is the first time we've done this, but I wanted to get the end of the story because I don't think it makes sense without the end of the story. Genesis 21 verse 1, The Lord visited Sarah as he said, First off, did Sarah show any signs of faith here? Probably not, but she probably went back and... Well, let's just go. Let's just keep going. The Lord visited Sarah as he said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Sarah conceived. Now, Sarah and Abraham obviously had sex and God gave them a child. But I want you to see something wonderful in this text. Literally something wonderful. Something that I hope would restore your wonder. It definitely restored hers. Look what Sarah goes on to say. Um, Verse 5, 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. This is a different type of laughter. It's a gospel laughter. It's the laughter of grace. She was completely dead in her flesh. She was completely unworthy. She was completely even lacking faith. And God moved into her dead and dying flesh and he produced life. It's the laughter of grace. God has done the wonderful He's done what's impossible for man to do on their own. God, not only had God given her a child, he reconciled. He had done something in their heart. God can restore relationships by healing hearts. The gospel can change even the hardest of hearts. I pray that this would renew your hope and renew your wonder today. That it would fill you again with this hope that the gospel can bring to your life. That God waited till they're old. Yes, it was difficult, yet he put it off. Yet he he waited until it was absolutely impossible and there was no other way out. But God still did it. He still made them new and he still gave her a child. But as I was listening to um, my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, this week, He pointed something out that I'd never thought of. He said, from this text, you can see four signs of a gospel-shaped Christian. This text gives us four 
signs of a person whose heart has been changed by the gospel. Number one, look what Sarah says. God has made laughter for me. And look, everyone here, everyone who hears will laugh over me. And then look at what else she says. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? I think it's funny here. She doesn't just say that Sarah would give birth to a baby. She says, who would have said to Abraham that your old lady here would be nursing babies when she's 90? But she says, yet I have. Yet I have. Number one, you can laugh at yourself. Sarah says, who am I that I would nurse a baby at 90? Can you picture that? Because that is hilarious. I see Betty White nursing a baby, right? I laugh. It's hilarious, right? But she says, yet I have. Now, how does this point to being a Christian? Listen, Christians cannot look down on others because they know how their salvation has nothing to do with them. They know their salvation is all by grace. Sarah didn't walk down the supermarket aisle with a swagger like, "Uh uh-huh, I'm a fertile old lady. And Abraham's walking behind her like, you know. This is an act of grace. This was God doing the impossible. They They couldn't take credit for this. Christians know the only reason they come to Christ is because it's an act of grace. God has moved on their heart. God has done something in them that once they thought something looked so stupid and so ignorant and so unbelieving, all of a sudden now they believe. All of a sudden now they desire Him. Every single Christian who understands the gospel should look back over their life and say, Who am I that God would have chosen me? Who am I that God would have rescued me? Who have God, Who am I that God would have saved me? Yet I am. Yet He has. How wonderful. How wonderful. Number one, she can laugh at herself. She doesn't take herself too seriously. Someone confronts you with your sin. Can you laugh at yourself? Can you admit your sin? Can you turn from your sin? Or do you take yourself too seriously? You got to fight for it, prove that you're wrong, or prove that that person was wrong. You didn't really sin. Number two. Number one, you can laugh at yourself. Number two, people can laugh at you, and you don't really care. She says, Everyone who hears will laugh at me. Hey, Sarah? Sarah's nursing. The one who's been talking, the one, right? She's been carrying a baby doll for like 30 years. That woman been saying to everybody, hey, it's coming, it's coming. They're all like, it ain't coming, woman. And now she's walking around with a real baby. That's funny. She realizes people are going to look and go, that ain't normal. In fact, Jesus said in Mark 13 that we will be hated because of him. Listen, listen. In the Beatitudes, he says that we are blessed when other people gossip and slander about us. He tells us to rejoice and be glad in spite of it. 
When you realize, see, listen, listen, this is what the gospel does. When you realize that the God of the universe has brought you in and saved you by sheer grace, that you are totally undeserving of his grace, that you are dead in your sin. You're like a hundred, a 90 year old woman in her ability to have children. It's not going to happen, but God has moved in your dead flesh and he's made you alive in him and he's brought you in. That causes you while you were sinning, you were doing all this, you were sinning and doing all this and God saved you and brought you in. You can laugh in the face of other people slandering you. Why? The God of the universe has brought me in. God has accepted me. This person's opinion of me no longer matters. When I have God's approval, the approval of others doesn't matter anymore. This is what the gospel does to a person's heart. Number one, they can laugh at themselves. Number two, people can laugh at you and you don't care. Jesus, man, how do we get away with this? Jesus said, we will be hated. We should get used to that. You will be gossiped about. You will be slandered about. And if we're not... Chances are we're not believing the gospel and living the life of Christ that he's called us to live. Number three. This is one of my favorites. Sarah could now laugh at her past. She was reconciled to her past. Now, how do we see this? Remember that point? God put a pin in it. Remember that point back there? Oh, did you laugh? No, I didn't laugh. Yeah, you laughed. And now God gives the baby, and what does she do? She laughs. And what's everybody else going to do? They're going to laugh. See how God flips the script on laughter in her life? See how God redeems her laugh? See how Jesus himself gospels Sarah and flips the script? He brought redemption to her past. Your barrenness, your brokenness, your fruitless marriage, your feelings of worthlessness, your cynical and hopeless laugh. Remember that? God turns it all to joy. Oh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. You remember all the wounds? Remember all the hurts? Remember all the ridicule? Remember all the pain? Let me flip it. He redeems it all. God has made laughter for her by total grace. He lets the darkness of her past be the backdrop for his redemption to shine the brightest. The spot that was the sorest, the spot that was the most raw, God redeems for his glory. Where you've been broken, where you've been hurt, where you're most... The, the wound that cuts the deepest, the wound that's the, that's the most raw, God wants to touch that spot and redeem it for His glory. That's where the gospel story can intersect with your story. Man, it's so good. Or it could just be a big coincidence in Scripture. You can laugh at yourself when you believe the gospel. See, I'm just going to do this. Right-wing, fundamentalist, 
Christians, and I use the term Christians very lightly, people that, that, that want to legalize and legislate morality, they can't laugh at themselves. They think somehow they deserve. They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and became a good moral person and now God loves them well. If you understand the gospel, you can laugh at yourself because you're worthless. But he chose you and filled you with worth. People on the right, people on the left, they can't, when people laugh at them, they can't handle it. They can't handle it. They, they, they blow their minds. People on the far left, they claim free speech. And then when a preacher wants to preach about what the Bible says, they want to tell them to shut up. Free speech, shut up? How does that work? The left, they're just as bigoted as the right. Free speech for everybody who thinks like me. The gospel is different. It's not left, it's not right. The gospel is different. We can laugh at ourselves. We cannot be worried when the world laughs at us, when people laugh at us. And we can laugh at our past. We can be reconciled and redeemed to our past. And then lastly, she can laugh at the world's standards. The heart that's been changed by the gospel can laugh at the world's standards. A 90-year-old woman nursing? Really? Paul tells us in Corinthians 118, for the word of cross, the, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. This is what he's saying. The gospel is is foolish looking. The gospel is offensive. The cross speaks a word that our culture doesn't want to hear. The cross says sin is this big. It's this bad. And God is looking and God sees and God counts it. He keeps a record of all our rebellion and all our law breaking. It seems foolish to our pluralistic and so-called tolerant society that God would actually deem us as sinners worthy of eternal punishment in hell. The gospel is offensive to our culture. But that's exactly what the cross means. But the cross also speaks a better word for those who are willing to humble themselves and admit their sinfulness and helplessness. The cross shows us that God loves his sinful people so much that he will give his own son to purchase their redemption. See, listen, this story, this story in Genesis 18 and 21, it points to another story in Luke 1 where another angel shows up to another unsuspecting girl. This one had impossible circumstances as well. She was without a husband. She was a virgin. 
And that angel promises to that girl a baby boy as well. In the same line as Isaac. His name is to be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, listen. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. This story that we read in Genesis, it's pointing to the birth and the coming of Jesus Christ. How can Sarah, how can the story of Sarah renew my hope? How can Sarah renew my marriage? How can this story renew my wonder? How can it change my heart where I actually want to be a human being again and I want to feel again, I want to emote again? How can that story, I'm going to say maybe that story can't, but what that story can do is it can point to a true and better story that can. See, listen, Jesus Christ, as the eternal Son of God, He lived in an eternal world of laughter inside the Trinity, inside a Trinitarian happy God. Jesus lived in a... I mean, can you think of that? An eternal world of of laughter. But Jesus left that happiness. He left that world of laughter and He became... A man of sorrows. Jesus left the eternal embrace of laughter to become the man of sorrows. So that through his life and death and resurrection and ascension, we could laugh for eternity with God. Isn't this wonderful? There is no story. There is no story more wonderful than this. Every Les Mis is amazing, but guess what? It borrows from this story. It connects to this story. Narnia is great. Lord of the Rings, amazing. They all connect to this universal story of redemption. The God of laughter becomes a man of sorrows so that we through him might have eternal laughter with God. It's wonderful. Jesus took God's frown so that we could have his smile. Has the gospel done that in your life? Has the gospel done that in your life? I hope you listen to me, please. This, we're not going to say, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Right? You could teach a parakeet to say that. I'm not worried about that. Yeah, there is that one verse. Yeah, confess to me, I believe in you. Yeah, here's the deal. We know we're Christians by our fruit. And this is the fruit of a person who believes the gospel. They can laugh at themselves. They're not worried when others laugh at them. They don't freak out because their identity is not found in other people. Their identity is found in Christ. They can be reconciled to their past. They can laugh at the past that God brought them from and be joyful in it. They can laugh at the world's standards. I'm asking God to do that in my heart. Has he done it in yours? Has he given you your sense of wonder back? 
Can you sit in a room and be happy? Happy, happy, happy. Can you? A great philosopher once said, 90% of men's problems is because they can't sit in a room alone by themselves. Can you sit in a room with people? Or is the pull, the pull to virtual friends too strong? I, I can't really be present here. There's something broken about me. There's something not right about me. These friends are kind of boring. They're not near as flashy as my Facebook friends. I can't be real. I can't be normal. I can't be in a place. I pray that God would restore your laughter. God would restore your wonder through the gospel. God would heal your hearts. God would restore the image of God in you. He'd renew what it means to be a human being again. I pray that he would do all those things through the gospel. Jesus Christ took God's frown so that we could have a smile. He left the eternal world of laughter to become a man of sorrows. Father, I pray that we would embrace a life of laughter and a life of sorrow. That you would make us truly human. That you would give us the full range and the full spectrum of emotions. That you would do this in our heart. That you would restore us like you restored Abram and Sarah how you breathed your life into dead flesh, that you would breathe your spirit into us today. Though the culture tries to frame us and force us and push us into this cookie-cutter image of consumers, that you would do something different in our hearts. Give us a desire for community. Give us a desire for relationship. Heal our hearts in those ways that we can't do ourselves. I pray that every time we look to the cross, every time we look to the cross, we'd be overwhelmed. We would be overwhelmed at the the length you went to restore our laughter. Do it in us. Let us be your gospel people. Let us be people who laugh well. For your glory, for your namesake, And for our joy, we worship you. Father, as we come before your table, as we break the body of Christ and we pour the cup of your blood, I pray that we would be reminded that it took your death bring us life. It took your sorrow to bring us joy. It took your weeping to bring us laughter. And may this body and blood remind us of that. May it communicate that to us as we receive it in the Lord's table. May we repent of our sin, turn from it, and turn to you. And we turn from our false identities and our false ideas of what it being a human looks like and let us turn to you, the source of our life, the creator of human beings, that you know what we were created for. 
May you remake us. May you restore us. May you heal us through the power of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.